Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Sorcerer's Orphan, a podcast created to dissect and explore the inner workings and inspired accidents that have helped the Flaming Lips write, create, and record some of our most iconic music and songs. I'm Stephen Drozd, and I will be your host and your guide for this half hour of discussion and rememberings. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. This is the song, She Don't Use Jelly, from the 1993 album, Transmissions from the Satellite Heart. We'll talk about the song's quirky special quality, we'll talk about being on Beverly Hills 90210, and we'll talk about how this unique little song became a minor top 40 hit. We have a really cool show ahead for you, but first, let's start where we always do. This song was written and recorded in February of 1993 and was released as an album track on June 22nd of 1993, then released as a single on 7-inch vinyl, CD, and cassette tape later in October of 1993. I had by this time been in the Flaming Lips for a little over a year. We were playing lots of shows, and I was very excited to be working on our first record. Well, my first record with them anyway. Wayne and Michael had already made six really insane albums, and even though they had been a group for almost ten years, this new record really felt like a new thing was happening. And, like I said, I was excited, and so were they. We were recording in Oklahoma City at a studio simply called Studio 7. And the record, which would go on to become Transmissions from the Satellite Heart, was going well. We knew we had this funny little song, She Don't Use Jelly, and Wayne and I were kind of waiting to see how we would produce the song. What I mean is... It's fun and creative, but it is a lot of work. Producing a song is lots and lots of little decisions. If it's a very simple and minimal song, then what? Is it electric guitars or acoustic guitars? What is the drum beat? How did the drums sound? If a song is, in a sense, a painting, what is the color palette? What we were discovering was that distinct vibe, that special coloring that we were starting to be happy with. The recording sessions started with this track. Teenagers in the Himalayas.
a frustrating track that didn't end up being on the album. But the next song, Slow Nerve Action, would start to show us the way. We had done a really inspired demo four track of the song. And the great leap forward, the great insight, and great new thing that we did on this demo, which sadly we do not have available, was add some radical distortion to the drum kit. This wasn't before the days of pre-recorded digital samples and beats. All of this stuff was out there already, in the world. But us salt-of-the-earth Midwestern indie rockers weren't quite playing with that stuff just yet. So, we are still recording the drums from a drum kit with microphones, and we would run this through a distortion patch on the SPX90 effects rack. Like this. This is a recording of me playing drums. And then add here some distortion, EQ, compression, and crunch. For us, back in 1993, this was a radical new sound. And so we were still at the very beginning of making our new record, but we were making some breakthroughs and we knew we had some great, great songs. And this part is a crucial artistic quagmire. A song is not a sound. What I mean is all records have a sound. And even back in 1993, there were lots and lots of choices of how the tone and coloring of everything in our music could be. We were collectively, as a group, working out how to proceed. This is the actual multi-track recording of the song, Turn It On. It begins with Wayne playing acoustic guitar, and then that's double track. Then in comes Ronald Jones, with his sort of countrified, tasteful, cool electric picking. Then my big glam rock distortion guitar comes in. Then another spacey raw guitar.
control the drums already distorted. And then you hear Michael's bass. We were sorting out a method. She Don't Use Jelly was indeed a very charming little song from the very first time Wayne played it for me. But charming little songs can easily be ruined by the wrong accompaniment and the wrong production. And we knew we wanted to add some arrangement and rock out bits around those charming little verses. There's a slight misconception about who played what instrument and which part and where on the track. I can tell you it was and still is, even now, complete chaos. Ronald Jones was indeed a very inventive original guitarist. It is understandable to think that any spacey, freak-out sound effect stuff could have been played by him. But really, and this is the wonderful thing I discovered upon entering the studio with the Flaming Lips, is that none of us is confined to any instrument. Anything anybody wants to try at any time, any sound made by anybody, is welcomed and encouraged. For instance, here again is the actual multi-track recording of She Don't Use Jelly. And it is maybe not what you'd at first think. playing the fuzz psych rhythm but then he also added this little overdub of a phaser guitar right here and then I am playing the pedal steel and then again I'm playing a soft guitar mimicking the pedal steel melody line about one minute into the track, Ronald plays this great popcorn rhythm burst of electric guitar. It's not a mysterious track, and though lots of cool things are being played, it is, by our standards, still kind of normal, which is, I believe, part of its mainstream appeal. But, and this part is tricky, its absurdist yet safe story and lyric is what is truly remarkable about She Don't Use Jelly. In the Hall of Fame of Weird Lyrics, it really does stand out as a Wayne classic. Wayne would actually talk about putting Vaseline on toast. But within the storyline of the song, the Vaseline line is, according to some listeners, about some kind of slightly kinky sex act. But to us, it really only was about actually eating Vaseline on toast. And in this parallel of meanings, 
we, as the Flaming Lips, began to understand our quagmire. And that is that our cuteness and quirkiness does occasionally, by accident, appeal to the mainstream audience. And here's what Wayne had to say about it. And so it would be hard to know what it is to figure out with any kind of creation as you're flowing along the wonderful thing that happens is it is that it just happens and most of the things that I feel like when I've played them for Stephen it would be as much as it it sounds hokey to say it but it's just from your pure heart that you're saying these things from and I think to try to be clever and to try to be so outsmart everybody or or none of that really ever rings as true as just being real and being you but there's no way you can consciously be real it's 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 kind of an impossible task that once you become aware of it you can't do it and so a lot of times when i'm writing music that i'm not writing with steven's music i'm writing it just from my own clunky playing i'm kind of halfway playing and halfway singing and i think that area in between really does allow for something like a stream of consciousness to happen and and i would say with singing and lyrics you could do that maybe a hundred times and maybe one of them would be exceptional or be be entertaining and would be appealing to somebody else and i would still think that that's probably a pretty good you know that's not that's not that bad knowing that you're kind of singing and playing all the time and that that something will pop out but it's that i think for me it's probably that flow that the lyric and the melody and the chord structure and all that are kind of one thing is kind of urging it on but i would say wish you don't use jelly that flow of the little storyline da 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 da, da. It, it you could almost be telling any story in that and it it kind of would turn out kind of pleasant and i think that that kind of let us not overwork it so much each little story though the end of it would would rhyme with vaseline and and tangerine and magazine and those sorts of things i think those things on one level might seem like they're clever but they really were just simplistic things that came to my mind and i've had no no intention and and still don't ever try to have a dual meaning where i'm saying one thing and hoping that it gets interpreted to mean something cooler um i think you're lucky if that happens but mostly when you try to be clever um you try to be smart or try to think that you're smarter than everybody else that usually especially with music 
really exposes you for the fool that you really are, and nobody wins with that. Because I think music, the reason why it is so, we love it so much is because it says things that we don't quite know how to say. And here's this music, and the music itself is, is hinting at abstract emotional connections that would be very difficult to articulate. And a lot of times, especially when we're young, you know, especially in our late teens and early 20s, music has captured these great complicated emotional things that I think we would be embarrassed to say to each other. And I think that's why love songs especially work because you can sometimes just go up to somebody and say here listen to this song this is the way I feel about it and I think sometimes with with the music that Stephen and I have done I think we're lucky that it does really flow realistically from the inner hearts of our of our being and of our mind and I think that is the little thing that it's it's passed on to the listener that they get that I don't think it's necessarily a sim- always a simplistic romantic complicated thing but it's a little quirk that with with the help of music somehow it penetrates and we've communicated what we're about to somebody else and I think that's why music is always such a it's the king it's 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 the master of all of all the things it it does in a split second this thing that would take you half of a novel to write about it even takes hours sometimes in a conversation to talk about it and sometimes with music in just a matter of seconds we understand this thing that would take us forever to really articulate to each other After the break, we will talk about the long, strange trip She Don't Use Jelly took on the way to the Peach Pit in Beverly Hills 90218. We'll be right back. Flaming Lips' greatest hits. All my dreams coming true. It's got all my favorite songs. Like this one. Oh, and this. Oh my God, and hard to find songs like this one. I'm so happy. The Flaming Lips Greatest Hits. Available on Warner Brothers Records. Get it now. Greetings, curious children of all ages. The time has come to celebrate exciting new music. 
lips doing the songs and music of The King's Mouth. The story and fantasy tale of a futuristic medieval time and place. With narration by Mick Jones, formerly of The Clash and Big Audio Dynamite. The King is dead. The immersive art installation come to life through magical sounds and singing. In a time far away. The Flaming Lips The King's Mouth is available on Record Store Day. Thank you for listening. This is The Sorcerer's Orphan, a podcast where I, Stephen Drozd, dissect and discuss some of the Flaming Lips' most iconic music and songs. She Don't Use Jolly was released in June of 1993. It was a focus track, and we did make a great video for it. But also, we played it at every show. And we played it at, of all places, the Peach Pit After Dark on the television show Beverly Hills 90210. Which you might think is why it became a popular song. But the Peach Pit was one of the last places it showed up. You see, we did the taping for the show in January of 1995, and it aired later that year in May of 1995. But, like I said, this is one of the last places it showed up. So let's start two years earlier, in June of 1993. Our album, Transmissions from the Satellite Heart, is released, and we set off on what will end up being a series of tours that would put us in the middle of several culturally defining trends in music. Let's begin. So, we are lucky enough to get the opening slot for Perry Farrell's new group, Porno for Pyros. Porno for Pyros was, at the time, a group that the world was watching with great expectations. Perry Farrell was the singer for Jane's Addiction and is the co-founder of the Lollapalooza Music Festival, which at the time, in 1993, was as culturally significant as you could get. So we are playing shows with Porno for Pyros, but the audience is slightly confused by them. I think the theatrical freakiness of Porno for Pyros is annoying to the metalheads in the audience. But the art rock crowd that is there to see Perry's new trip were now very annoyed at the beer-swigging metalheads. So yeah, the art rock crowd are sick of the metalheads, and the metalheads don't want to be around the art rock weirdos. And it's become kind of a polarizing scene. It's a struggle. And Porno for Pyros are not that determined to win either of them over. We play and are not a hated art love. It's kind of classic opening band scenario. But we are kind of relieved to not get too much attention. The next tour is playing with the Butthole Surfers and the Stone Temple Pilots, which was called the Barbecue Mitzvah Tour. I gotta laugh here. <laughs> 
and it is a tour that is the perfect storm of grunge rock, alternative rock, and indie rock. We are now more embedded into the zeitgeist of youth culture music stuff. The Stone Temple Pilots are growing more popular with each show, and strangely, they, the Stone Temple Pilots, are not at the top of the bill. The butthole surfers are the headlining group, which means we play just before the Stone Temple Pilots, which means that most nights there would be a pretty big testosterone-fueled audience for us as well. This audience would, for the most part, be there to, and I quote the Richard Linklater movie Days to Confused, this audience is there to get drunk, get laid, or get in a fight. And this audience would, for the most part, ignore us. Occasionally, they would despise us, but surprisingly, they would actually applaud when we played She Don't Use Jelly. We were seeing how She Don't Use Jelly was able to get this reaction from the non-Flaming Lips fans. Hmm. Non-Flaming Lips fans. Well, next we fly to England and have a triumphant show in a giant tent at the Reading Festival. It's an interesting bill that year. We see Porno for Pyros and the Butthole Surfers and the Stone Temple Pilots are all of them actually playing this festival as well. And strangely, none of their sets seem to go over very well with the British audience. Something has already slightly changed. We, on the other hand, have a very big loving audience for our set and it feels good to not be an opening act for a moment. And there are some other groups that seem to be blowing people's minds that weekend. Rage Against the Machine destroy the British audience, as do Radiohead and Tool. We watch Tool play and become fast friends. Back in America, just a couple of weeks later, we're doing some of our favorite shows ever with a couple of very original American underground groups. The Grifters are from Memphis, Tennessee, and Codeine are from New York City. Now we're playing to bigger, more enthusiastic audiences. But some of this new audience only knows she don't use jelly. And that is okay with us. We have bubble machines, smoke, and strobe lights to entertain the less enlightened. We really did, and still do, make a great effort to include them. So, it is now November of 1993. Our record has been out for six months, and it's still gaining momentum. We do another round of American tour dates with Chicago Weirdos Red Red Meat. We are truly in our element. We are playing with great original bands at cool American underground venues. She Don't Use Jelly is, most nights, just another well-received favorite. It's now April of 1994. Our record has been out for almost a year, and our video for She Don't Use Jelly is being played on MTV's Beavis and Butthead show. And again, we are in the flow of culturally exciting and significant music stuff. It's a lot of fun to watch Beavis and Butthead make fun of Wayne's orange hair. But having orange hair back in 1994 wasn't always fun and silliness, as we would soon find out opening up for Tool. Yes, the moody confrontational metal group Tool. As I'd mentioned earlier, we had become friends with them the previous summer at the Reading Festival. 
Tool's audience did not feign indifference. They, the Tool audience, were angry and actually offended that we were playing. For the first time in a while, She Don't Use Jelly can't penetrate the crowd. Nothing we do is appreciated, which is, in a funny way, kind of empowering to play to people who are so hostile and so resistant. We realized it was useless to try to please them, so we decided to just please ourselves. And maybe it didn't help that we opened our set with a cover of a flock of seagulls space age love song and Wayne wore Christmas lights. Oh yeah, and he had that orange hair, which they hated. It was a challenge that we embraced, and though the audience didn't seem to like us, and in the face of this disdain, we became a better group. And I still believe those shows, opening for Tool, were some of our greatest, most fun shows. Lollapalooza in 1994 was, again, about as culturally exciting and significant as you could get. Lollapalooza was still brand new, but was getting bigger and bigger, and we were lucky enough to get to headline the second stage. In my opinion, this fourth year of the then-traveling roadshow Lollapalooza was its greatest overall lineup. It's a stunning list. The Beastie Boys, the Boredoms, the Breeders, Parliament Funkadelic, Stereolab, Palace Brothers, Guided by Voices, and strangely, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. As the tour went on, we became friends with Nick and the group. And one day, Wayne convinced Nick to come over to our stage and sing the song, What a Wonderful World. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue. Clouds of white, the bright blessed day, and the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Nick and Wayne would trade off doing the verses. It was a triumphant summer. I know a girl who thinks of ghosts. She'll make you breakfast. She'll make you toast. But she don't use butter. She don't use jelly, once again, would be loved by the giant audience that didn't always know very much of our music. 
So, it's already been a long, strange journey. But we're not done yet. It is now the fall of 1994, and we are being thought of as cool. We're being celebrated as an authentic alternative indie rock group, which carried with it a kind of street cred value that we previously were unaware of. Madonna's record label, Maverick, were pushing their new pseudo-grunge wannabe stadium rockers, Candlebox. And Candlebox were having some success with alternative radio. They were set to play hockey arenas all across America. They, Candlebox, for some reason, were wanting a group that was cool and had some street credibility. They picked us. And we, at first, were not very interested, but then they agreed to pay us more money, and our manager, Scott Booker, had convinced the radio department at Warner Brothers to service She Don't Use Jelly to alternative radio stations. And, and this is a big thing, to ask the radio programmers to try to come to these big arena shows early enough to catch our set. The Candlebox audience was a very normal mainstream audience. Some nights we would be playing to up to 10,000 people, but we were beginning to get burnt out. Burnt out. Burnt out. We had been touring for a year and a half, and I think some of the thrill was gone. But still, every night when we played She Don't Use Jelly, there would be this noticeable difference in the reaction from the audience. And I think this had the desired effect on the radio programmers. As the tour, which was three months long, went on, She Don't Use Jelly was, little by little, being played on quite a few radio stations all around the country. Two weeks later, I was Christmas shopping at the mall. I remember hearing She Don't Use Jelly over the mall sound system. It was being played amongst all the other top 40 hits of 1994. My reaction was a strange mixture of joy and embarrassment. It was thrilling yet uncomfortable. We had never experienced this type of success before. We were adjusting to a new world. The television show Beverly Hills 90210 was, back in 1995, about as culturally significant as you can get but also kind of culturally mind-numbing. It was, and still is, a show that you can watch all at the same time. You can love it, you can hate it, you can make fun of it, you can think it is stupid, or you can think it's genius. It can be a guilty pleasure or just a pleasure. I had become a fan of the show in the previous couple of years. So when they asked us to play the now-famous Peach Pit After Dark segment, we were forced to confront this new dilemma. The dilemma is this. If we are artists... Why do we care about this stupid show? But we know that we kind of enjoy this stupid show. Being on the stupid show and getting to meet some of the characters in real life would be... How can you say it? It would be... It would simply be absurd and fun and exciting. And at this point, we are not easily excited. And having said that, oftentimes you can say yes to things, and for whatever the reason, down the line, they just don't work out. So we said yes and didn't really have to think about it too much. We tape in Los Angeles, and as far as we can tell, the taping of our segment is the very last thing being shot for that episode. 
So this is at the very end of a very long day on a Friday. The crew and some of the stars of the show are tired and just want to go home, but not all the stars are grumpy. Ian Ziering, or Ian, Ian, or Ian, or Ian, the guy that plays Steve, Ian Ziering, is very happy to see us, and we have some fun exchanging small talk and pleasantries. <laughs> Needless to say, we are not in our element, but we are learning that it is better to throw out all your preconceived ideas about what you think is going to happen. We just embrace whatever it is that is actually happening. The taping of the song itself was just kind of normal lip syncing, meaning we aren't actually playing. We're just acting like we're playing, and we're faking it to the track, and they film it. We ran through the song a couple of times and got to hang around while they shot some of the scenes connected to our fake performance. It was stunning to hear Steve Sanders, Ian Ziering's character, say the hilarious line. You know, I've never been a big fan of alternative music, but these guys rock the house. Yep, that's an amazing line. And at the end of the taping, we were taking a group photo with the cast. Tori Spelling, who's been noticeably annoyed at almost everything, is standing next to me. When I innocently ask her, "Where's Jenny Garth, who's the other big female star of the show?" Tori flippantly and snidely jabs back at me. What? Am I not good enough for you? It was and still is a story and remembrance that I cherish. When the show finally airs in May of 1995, it is almost two years since "She Don't Use Jelly" was released. We have a big watch party in Oklahoma City, and one of our friends sets up a big tank of nitrous oxide. Everyone is laughing until they fall over. We have a really great time. We have already started to record our next record. That would end up being Cloud's Taste Metallic, and that is another podcast. All of this, from writing the song to recording the song to making a video for the song to finding our way into all these great tours, and then being able to be on such an iconic show as Beverly Hills 90210, all of these things led to "She Don't Use Jelly" being such a popular song. Or maybe there's a secret we're not aware of. Well, you know, I wish I could tell you that there's a great secret. You know, so many people have asked me this over the years of of what it was that created this situation for Flaming Lips. But the reality is, and here's the bad news, is there really is no secret. We spoke to Scott Booker, the manager of the Flaming Lips, since 1990. We spoke to him from the Academy of Contemporary Music in Oklahoma City. It's part of it is luck, I think, always. But mostly, it's people, meaning the Flaming Lips, that are working hard to make this happen. They're working hard by touring nonstop, by spending hours in the studio, you know, making an amazing song, and you know, it's their creativity, and I think it's their willing. Their willingness to listen to advice, but wisely, with me, I hope, wisely choosing the bits and pieces of that advice that really does make sense for a band like the Flaming Lips. You know, one of the things I felt like 
the Flaming Lips and I were worried about or would talk about was the idea of are we compromising by going out with a band like uh, Candlebox? And I would remind the band that it's no compromise because we're not changing what the band is doing. You're playing the songs you would play if you were in a, a grungy little club headlining yourself. In a way, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of the band Devo. He's talking about the American art-punk pop group Devo, who radically changed the music business in 1979. And what drew me to them when I was young wasn't just the songs like, you know, the hits like Whip It and stuff, was that even though they were part of pop culture, was that there was this underlying message that was really subversive. They were using popular culture to actually try to make us smarter. I remember when, you know, we were offered the opportunity to be on Beverly Hills 90210. Um, I think we all sit down and, and we talked about it, you know, the Flaming Lips and I. And, you know, I felt like the Flaming Lips being on Beverly Hills 90210, once again, wasn't a compromise because we were doing our song the way we wanted to. I've always felt like the more people that could see the band, and hear the band, the more what we were about got out into the world. And that brings us to the end of our podcast. What a great fun story it has been. Thank you for listening and for all the wonderful comments and feedback. Doing this podcast is truly a joy for me, and I'm so grateful for you. You. You, our great, great audience. I want to say thank you to Scott Booker, our manager, for helping us tell this cool story. Join us next time. We'll be talking about this. The music and songs of the King's Mouth art installation. Until next time, peace and punk rock forever. Uh